Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence, and happy Friday. So glad you're with me today. We're going to have a great show today. We're going to actually get things off and running with Friday with Friends. You know, that's one of the new segments I like doing because, you know, I'm seeing my friends less and less nowadays between not traveling and uh, not being on the road and all that. You just don't really connect with friends quite the way you used to. So, uh, my friend that I'm bringing on the program today, his name is Joe Gaucher. He is a master of the Scottish accordion. He also has an L-shaped couch, and he likes to be on it. He's uh, been a performer for most of his life. He still is, but he's also doing all kinds of other stuff. And I just say it's time to connect once again. Joe, welcome. I am happy to be here, Billy Bob. I figured How you would you? be. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. You know, we go back to a lot, lots and lots of years ago when we started going in into uh, prisons, and I think we've been in about 80 prisons together, oftentimes yeah. as a volunteer. Uh, very, very often uh, involuntary, uh, <laughs> and very and very often voluntary. Yeah. It just depends, yeah, depends on what side of the street you got caught yeah. on. And it was really fun because the whole ministry was based uh, on Chuck Colson's prison fellowship. It was a called Starting Line, and yep. it was a program where you'd go into a, a a prison and you'd put on a presentation and there'd be singers and comedians and um, speakers athletes and athletes and yeah, yeah. Uh, guys that would do strength demonstrations. Uh, we did that for a while. Then we let other people do it, but um, mm-hmm. we, we just had a blast and we'd be in non-conventional spaces. So sometimes you'd be in a, in a uh, like a gymnasium or you'd be in a, a utility room and then people with the inmates would come <laughs> and they would, yeah. uh, they would hear us for two and a half hours. That was a blast. Yeah, it was absolutely a blast, and and the uh, I I think if I if I remember right, there was a lot of times when people would just say, "Well, just go from cell to cell and <laughs> tell people about yourself," and that that that's an unnerving sort of uh, position to be in, and it really does challenge you know your personal space. Uh, I, I I don't know. I experienced a lot of growth through that. I think because uh, you know somebody says, "Well, just walk down this corridor." Where these killers might be uh, lurking, and uh, and and talk to them about, uh, you know, why you don't want to die today. You know? Yeah, I yeah. mean, basically, go up to the bars, introduce yourself, and try to hold a conversation with them. <laughs> I remember that guy. They dropped a little tray where they would, you know, slide their food through there. They called the monkey box. Yeah, and uh, and he said, well, you know, keep your keep your eye out of the monkey box in case they throw something at you. You know, mm-hmm. uh, now go share the good news. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, anytime you're pressed up against something like that, it's not just a matter of, uh, uh, you know, the, the experience itself is going to stretch you. But it, it really does bear down on who you are and what you believe and and what you're willing to to do about it. You know, I think it's, it's it was a, it was a crazy great experience. Mm-hmm. Crazy great. And remind our listeners, Gaucher is is that French or I'm pretty sure it's French, isn't it? That is a French. It's G A U T I E R. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And is it go, and Gaucher or Gaucher? People will want to know. It's, it's, 
it's a, it's Gautier, Jim Upper Gautier. Gautier, so yeah. You have to swallow the goat yeah, <laughs> to get it out. <laughs> I love the swallowing the goat part. That's yep. always been a swallow the goat. Yeah, yep. fun for me. Yep. So let's talk about uh, a little bit fast forward in your life, uh, and you became uh, an amazing stepdad. I became a standard, what we call the standard extra large. Uh, uh, stepdad and uh, extra large in the sense that I picked up three along the way and became instant dad. Uh, Friday single, uh, worry-free, uh, one dog, and then Saturday uh, three kids and four dogs and a new wife. And, and you know, all of that comes with, you know, uh, former husbands and ex-husbands and <laughs> you know, and another whole family who may or may not like you. Uh, yeah, so the whole thing came down, and from the time we met to the time we married was 11 weeks. So it was a little bit like walking down the uh, that 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 corridor at the prison uh, and dropping the monkey box. It was it was the same sort of experience because you're you put a ring on her finger and you say I'm in for this uh, mm-hmm. the long haul. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote a, a book. This is years ago, trying to sort of suss out how is what did this do to me and what am I going through in the process. Uh, and what I realized was that you're either in or out if you're a stepdad. You, you don't get to marry the girl and then say these kids are not my responsibility. Mm-hmm. You, you're 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 in for the you're either in or you're out. Uh, and so th- I, I think that was the very first point I wanted to make was that you're not making a commitment to a woman in this case or a man if you're you're picking up you know a husband an extra husband or whatever you're you're picking up a new family and you have to be in 100% um and that and so when you make those vows before God you're saying I am the man for this job that's really what you're saying mm-hmm. and and it's a commitment to the whole process and unfortunately like walking down the corridor of a prison, you don't know what you're going to get into. <laughs> <laughs> and God usually doesn't tell you. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the blended families are not, they're not easy. They're, they have complications, don't they? they? They really do. And what you're doing essentially is you're putting two uh, groups of people that are not blood related uh, into a Cuisinart and you're hitting high. <laughs> you're hitting puree, mm-hmm. essentially. And and you've got to have a, a certain amount of uh, character or a willingness to have character built into you that you may or may not possess at the time. So the dedication, that commitment, that initial commitment is is paramount because you're you're jumping in both feet. There's no uh, one foot in the boat, one foot on the pier. Let's see how this works out. Let's see if I like these kids. The other part of it, which is really weird, and a lot of dads will get this. Moms typically won't. You have a baby. You know, the baby shows up and, you know, granted mom's tummy is getting bigger and you're watching the whole thing happen, but you don't have any connection to that baby. Uh, You've never seen it. You don't know what its name is. You don't know anything about it, what color, eyes or hair. You have no idea. And it pops out. And here you have this thing that you're related to that you just met for the first time and bonding begins. Whereas the mom's had this thing growing in her for nine months, and there's there's a certain amount of chemical bond, spiritual, emotional bond there that's not there with the dad. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's very similar yeah. to being a stepdad. And uh, 
and what I relate that to a lot of times is you, now you have this thing. Wait, wait. I got, I got to you stop have, you because I'm going to get a yeah. lot of texts. We have to go from the thing to you have this baby. <laughs> yeah. 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 You go from this thing to having this baby. Yeah. But no, um, it's always the baby. Yeah. Yeah. You, but, but, but you, so imagine as a stepdad, you're meeting the kids for the first time. Of course. And to you, they're one of them, maybe 15. Purple hair, uh, hates you, can't stand you, uh, doesn't know you, and you're going to build a relationship mm, wow. with this person. And so uh, just relating one story with uh, my, my daughter at the time was six when Stacy and I got married. And she, she always had the glare. She didn't want to look at me. She didn't want to talk to me. She didn't want to hang out with me. She didn't want to share my food. Uh, you know, she used to take the chips out of the bag and put them in a separate bowl so that my fingers wouldn't touch against them. And uh, and I remember we were out test driving a car one day, and, she, and I said, why don't you go with me? Let's go. We'll hang out together. She got in the back seat, and I was driving. And I said something to her, and she said, you know what? I want you to know you're not my you're not my boss, and you're not my dad, and you will never be my dad. And it caught me off guard because it kind of came out of nowhere. And I said, well, what would you rather have, a boss or a friend? And it completely pulled <laughs> the hair out of her balloon because mm -hmm. she didn't think that was an option. You know, But you start with that. You meet these kids. You're not their dad. You, you, you're, you're, their, you're their manager in a sense. <laughs> you still have to take that role, right? You're, you're there to affirm their mother. You're there to encourage them. I mean, it's, it's a crazy, crazy, crazy first year when you make that commitment. Uh, and you dare not do it alone. You better go with the Holy Spirit because he's going to uh, walk you through the process. You know, he is the author and the finisher, not just of our faith, but he's the author and the finisher of every good work that he brings along for us to do. Mm. Joe, how did God prepare you for this this role that you took on? It seemed pretty rapidly. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting uh, thing, and we talked a little bit before the introduction. Uh, the first thing that happens, I got a puppy, uh, and I'd never had a puppy before. Mm -hmm. And I dedicated myself. I wanted to, I wanted to train this puppy and spend time with this puppy, and and I poured my life into this stupid puppy. I just, I you know, I wanted to train her and. Uh, and, and feed her and groom her, and she's, of course, slept at the foot of the bed and, like, this whole thing. And I learned a, m the most important thing I learned in that process was not how to train the dog. It was how to train me. I was the one in training because if I would be consistent, that the dog would be consistent. And, I, and people think I'm going to train this dog. No, you're, you're going to learn to train yourself, and the dog's going to respond. Mm -hmm. And, and it's when you become a step parent, the same thing applies. The, my discipline is about me. I'm going to be consistent. And then what happens is these people that are now part of your clan <laughs> will they'll figure out whether you're consistent or not. And and then that consistency begins to build uh, dependability and and faithfulness and eventually love, which is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it was interesting, too, because uh, I had uh, a house in, in Hollywood, 
that I purchased, and uh, uh, it was it was very odd because in my in my time of prayer, I, of course, was praying for a wife. Uh, I wasn't necessarily praying for a wife with three kids and and ex husbands. I didn't. I wasn't praying for that specifically. Um, but uh, it's interesting because I had a three bedroom house, and I I remember. I used to walk through the house at night, early in the morning, and I'd, and I'd pray, and I would look into those two other bedrooms and imagine my kids in bunk beds, which was really weird. But but the the, the vision of that was very clear to me. As, as I'm walking through the house praying, I'm praying for those kids, not hmm. just for the marriage, which was really weird. I mean, think about that. Where, where did that come from? I, I think, you know, again, I think it was something that was birthed. Uh, in me, you know, birthed by the Holy Spirit in me, uh, that I wasn't aware was happening. Uh, I certainly didn't request it, you know. Um, and I'd love to have an ex-husband involved in my life, uh, just to take me to court a couple of times. That'd be awesome, uh, Lord. If you could, if you could work that out with a Ferrari, that'd be great. A right. Ferrari and an ex-husband and a couple of lawsuits. Uh, not, not what I was praying for. No, not uh, by any means. No. But then there's a there's a very interesting scripture in John one um, that that very spoke to me about being a stepdad and about the work that the Holy Spirit was doing in me ahead of time. Um, and again, um, you know, you and I talked about this. Not not everything that you uh, you hear from the Holy Spirit is necessarily going to be written out clearly in the scripture. Uh, but in my opinion, it should be it should be shadowed. It should be be able you should be able to confirm mm-hmm. those things that you're hearing. So it's interesting because God just was speaking to me about having uh, um, children that were birthed from me before I ever met them because I didn't go through the process um, of getting their mom pregnant and watching the baby you know become a bump and then watching the bump be born and. Uh, I didn't go through that process physically, but in a, in a spiritual sense, it was birthed in me in prayer ahead of time, which is crazy. But if you look at John 1, 12, it says this. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So now go back to Mary, right? Joseph didn't say, Lord, I, I come to you today because I'm hoping to get embroiled in the middle of a scandal. You know, I'm hoping that my betrothed becomes pregnant ahead of time because that's going to save us a lot of social problems. <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. if you could work it out to get her pregnant early you know, so that she has the baby but I don't have to be with her, that would be great. Amen. Not what he prayed. Right. But that's what happened. Right. So here's Joseph in the same exact position. Something is born of the Spirit, and it's, it's going to come to fruition, and there's going to be a baby born. But Joseph didn't have anything to do with it, mm-hmm. and yet he's given the task of being the father to the Son of God. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So All right. Joseph was a stepfather. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk more about Joseph. I'm taking a little break. Uh, Joe Gaucher is my guest today on Fridays with Friends. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Friday with Friends. My friend is Joe Gaucher. Growing up, he thought Captain Crunch was a real-life military hero. But uh, <laughs> you've, you've done well, Joe. So we, right before break, we were talking about Joseph, and he was kind of the, you know, had the awesome responsibility and, and was in charge of raising the Son of God. So, okay, that's pretty awesome. Let's pick up from there, because there's, I think, a lot more to talk about Joseph. Yeah, well, you know, the first time I really considered, I was doing a, a, you know, a Bible study in preparation to, you know, for this book that I had written called Stepping Out, which you can't get anymore, um, that Joseph was a stepfather. He wasn't, he wasn't the, the blood father uh, of this kid. And th- there's some interesting things that are brought up in Scripture about Joseph, and one of them in Matthew one nineteen says, because Joseph, her husband— course, Mary's husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So here's a guy, Joseph, who now his wife is pregnant, his betrothed is pregnant, Mm -hmm. and he is faithful to the law. What does that mean? She needs to be stoned. That's what it requires. Somebody is caught in prostitution, which is the what the the physical world was telling them, you know, the people around were going. Well, it's, it's obvious to us yeah. what happened. Do you mean adultery or what? What are you referring to? I mean, prostitution. So, that so the, I don't want to. I feel you know, confused. Yeah, yeah. So any woman who had uh, relations outside of a, we- right. a, a wedding vow, right, was considered the same as okay, gotcha. essentially gotcha. a prostitute. Okay, right. whether she was paid or not, that was, right. it was the same. Like level playing field. Okay. So here's this horrible scandal. It, Joseph didn't ask for a scandal. The whole thing, he comes into a scandalous situation, right? And the law requires that she be stoned. And in fact, there was a, a, there's a great movie, I think, called The Nativity, which was just out a couple of years ago, where the, you get to see this acted out. And people come to Joseph, and he has this dream, and people come to Joseph, and they say they put a stone in his hand. And they go, fulfill the law. Hmm. The, the stone this chick, you should be the first one to throw the stone. Well, he was referencing where Jesus later says, Th- those of you without sin, that those of you that are not recipients of grace, you throw this first stone. Yeah. But it says, because Joseph was faithful to the law, so he was, he was conflicted here. <laughs> but it shows the character of him. It shows that, that he was a man devout. He was dedicated to righteousness. But he saw something else. He saw something else going on here. That, to me, was a spiritual insight. It was uh, seeing something beyond the law, something beyond what was written, something beyond what is required. Because, you know, God's purpose in, in this. Is is that 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 mercy will out? You know, Jesus came not not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. So his whole modus operandi is mercy and righteousness and justice. And we as Christians have to walk that line constantly. We have to be we have to be desirous of justice. Uh, we we can't walk around in gray areas. 
uh, which is what the law represented, right? The law and the prophets. But Jesus said, you fulfill the law and the prophets when you love the way Christ loved. This fulfills all the law and the prophets. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought it was interesting that here's Joseph. He's devout. I mean, he is seeking uh, the will of God. And it's in the context of that that he's considering all these things, you know, because the verse 20 says, but after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in dreams and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And and she's going to give birth to a son. And of course, you know, she did. And then later, the, the same angel or another angel warns him to go to Egypt. All this kind of stuff happens. But what a dude. Yeah, no kidding. I'm like, what a dude to, <laughs> to walk walk face first into scandal. Mm-hmm. Right. So then I wrote a, I wrote uh, this the next chapter in the book, which was called The Scandalous Love of God. Mm. And and you go to the story of the prodigal son. That's that's what we call it, the prodigal son. The prodigal, the prodigal is not the son. The, the word prodigal means lavishly extravagant. That's what it means, prodigal. It means lavishly, ridiculously extravagant. And it was the story Jesus told wasn't to point at the son. The, the story Jesus told is to point to the lavish, ridiculously uh, savage, passionate, and almost irresponsible love that the father had. For us, it's a lavish love, and so Jesus tells the story. The guy comes home. He comes home. He's he's blown his money. He's been living riotous with prostitutes and and eating pig slop. And he comes home and says, "Dad, listen, uh, I I'm no longer worthy." To, and the dad's like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 whatever." My son <laughs> is home. Get him a robe. Bring out the ring. Now the ring, you know, the ring in those days was the master card with no limit. And he puts it on his finger and puts shoes on his feet. And he says, "My son was dead. Let's go party." Well, the son has to accept that grace. Now he could have stood outside for the next five weeks and said, "But I'm not worthy. Look at what I've done. I violated the law. I'm a horrible person." No, he went into the party and partied. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> he ate. He ate the fatted calf. Yeah, he didn't spend any time on self abasement and shame. Yeah, well, I look forward to getting together someday with you soon and having the fatted calf. It's be great to see you in person, <laughs> Joe. You're a, a real Renaissance man and poet, even though you've never written a poem. That doesn't even matter to me. Yeah, well, I appreciate it because uh, I, I'm really starting to get into the hairstyles of that era. <laughs> well, we'll. Learn more about that next time I'll have you on the show. How about that? Perfect. Yeah, perfect. All right. Friday with Friends, my friend Joe Gaucher. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Greg Heddington is going to continue our study on the Book of John. Be right back.
And welcome back. I'm so glad to be welcoming back to the program Dr. Greg Heddington. We've been studying the book of John, and it's been fantastic. And we are going to continue that study today. Greg, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be back. Yeah. Where do we pick up in our study of John today? I can't wait. Well, it's going to be John chapter 2. That's just what I thought. Are we ready? Yeah, I'm all set. All right. Well, welcome to the sixth lesson in our study, the Gospel of John, as we study the second chapter of John. The title for this lesson is The First Sign, and our central idea is all the signs point to Jesus as Messiah. Now, if you're taking notes, Roman number one, The Wedding at Cana. The author, John, is a master of significant events who gives us names, places, and many details about Jesus. After all, he was there as a witness to what he writes about. So here we go. The incident at Cana happens like this. Jesus and his mother, Mary, are invited to a wedding in the village of Cana, which is about 12 miles north where they live in their hometown of Nazareth. The invitation probably went out to Mary, and invitations were always sent well in advance because of the distance involved in ancient travel, as well as the fact that wedding celebrations lasted seven to ten days, so it was necessary for the groom to make provision for the food and wine. The wedding and celebration were the groom's responsibility because men were typically the wage earners who also were the ones who read Torah in the home while the wife took care of the domestic duties and child rearing. Jesus' earthly father is not mentioned and has likely died by this time, so it was Mary's responsibility to bring her eldest son with her because a respectable Jewish woman would never attend an event unescorted. In chapter 1, we read that Jesus had just begun to call young men to be his disciples, and at this point, he's chosen five. That to be chosen as a disciple by a rabbi was the greatest honor of all in any Jewish community, and the dream of every mother should her son be so blessed. In this gospel, Jesus will not complete his choosing of all 12 apostles until chapter 6. Now, when Jesus and Mary arrive at the wedding after walking miles to get there, you can imagine that Jesus would meet the host at the door and say something like, My mother and I are honored to be here for this wonderful celebration today, and um, I hope you don't mind if I brought along my five disciples. <laughs> well, not only would these five extra guests have been a surprise to the host, although in the Middle East culture the host would never show an expression of inhospitality, but the extra number of people might be what contributed to soon's going to be called the wine shortage disaster, which reflects the fact that this was probably a small wedding but poorly planned. And maybe, just maybe, it's because of poor planned weddings by the host, that would be the man, like this one, that now, apart from the bride's father who pays for it all, it is the bride who plans all the wedding for festivities, at least in the U.S., now, we don't know which day during the celebration that the wine gives out, but we do know that Mary must have been close to the bride since the bride confides in Mary about the impending social humiliation that is about to unfold and would become the talk of the town. I mean, it would even make the gossip rags and the Canaan confidential. <laughs> People would say, did you hear the latest? Well, they ran out of wine during Mordecai and Naomi's wedding celebration. Poor Naomi, they'll never be able to go to the market again without gossip. Hmm. Well, what to do? This calls for immediate action, so Mary pulls Jesus aside and quietly tells him, they've run out of wine. 
And Jesus replied, and here's the literal Greek, Woman, what to me and to you? My time has not yet come. Now, at first, this might seem like an impolite response, but it's not. Jesus is implying, quote, you might expect that at this occasion, I will reveal who I am as Messiah by performing a miracle, even though you, Mom, know who I am. However, a public display of who I am will not take place at this time, end of quote, or at least made up quote. <laughs> After all, we know Jesus is on a different timetable than what others would know about, and that's why we pray to the Lord in our time, and he answers in his time. Again, Mary shows that she must be close to the bride and groom because Mary authorizes the servants to, quote, do whatever my son tells you, which demonstrates her trust that Jesus will, in fact, do what is right, and Jesus is well aware of the potential humiliation of the couple, so he goes into action. He sees six huge stone containers nearby that hold, according to writer John, 20 to 30 gallons of water, which are to be used for a ceremonial washing of hands and utensils. Water was not the normal drink of the day because it was usually unsanitary, had to be boiled or mixed with wine, and yet Jesus tells his servants to fill up the six containers with water. Now, the writer John then adds this little detail that the servants, quote, filled them up to the brim. Why does John add that additional detail? Because the servants must have been thinking, well, the host is going to find out real quickly that we're the ones responsible for serving dirty water to the guest, and we know we're all going to get the boot, so we might as well just go out with a flourish. So, gentlemen, let's fill those containers up with the water to the brim. Next, Jesus tells the servant, Take a cup of that water and give it to the master of the banquet. Today we would call that person the toastmaster. The miracle of turning the water into wine occurs somewhere between the kitchen and the head table, and you know the servants are facing the door ready to make a hasty exit. But then the toastmaster says, We all know that at every wedding the good wine is always served first, and then when people have fully enjoyed the fruit of the vine, the host brings out the Boone's Farm. <laughs> But this wine is exceptional, and I commend the groom for his excellent taste. So the humiliation is overted, and the host is honored amazingly. So what next? We know this event literally took place because the writer John was there in person. Besides that fact, it is typical of the writer John to imply a double meaning. So we can also interpret this occasion as a metaphor for the state of Israel at the time, as well as we are here right now, in our life. Just as the wine ran out of the wedding, humankind ran out of fellowship with God centuries before in the Garden of Eden. Sin entered the world for the first time, and human celebration in its God-intended sense ended for many centuries until Jesus arrived to restore our reason to truly celebrate. Just as the Toastmaster said that everyone serves the best wine first and then they offer the cheap wine, once these senses of the people are dulled, in that same way, the ruler of this world, who is Satan, according to Jesus in John twelve thirty one, Satan showcases sin in different form to be attractive, so we are drawn to it, but predictably, this cheap wine, which represents behavior that does not honor the Lord, falls short and it disappoints. That temporary good feeling will eventually run out because there's always an expiration date on false joy. 
But the joy of knowing the Lord lasts forever, represented by the excellent wine served at the end. If you want a one-liner? I do. Jesus saves his best blessings for last. Therefore, when our time on earth comes to an end, Christ followers have much more to look forward to because our reward of heaven reminds us that God saves the best wine for the end of the party, saves the best for the end, and what a comfort to all of us. Mm. And all the signs point to Jesus as Messiah, which is the central idea of our lesson today. Now, we are going to uh, have three conclusions that we can draw from this first miracle at Cana, or as John calls them, signs that Jesus performed. So chapter two, eleven, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, describes all three. Number one conclusion, in verse 11, John says this is the first of his signs. And this miracle occurred in Galilee, but it was just the beginning of all of his miracles. Now, that dispels the myths that some people have invented about what Jesus might have been doing in his first 30 years of life in his public, before his public ministry. As Philippians 2.17 says, Jesus, quote, emptied himself of his godly powers. So he grew up as an ordinary Jewish man, boy, with his divine identity hidden. Number two conclusion we make, Jesus reveals his sovereign power for the first time, as well as authenticating that he is a merciful God who provides for people in need, like that couple, Mm -hmm. like us. Number three conclusion, the apostles put their faith in Jesus. Now, here's a question. Who at the wedding was aware that a miracle had occurred? Well, the servants, the disciples, and maybe Mary. So it was a quiet miracle in which Jesus did not publicly draw attention to himself. The disciples certainly had some faith before that event, but their faith became strengthened because of it. It would take years for the apostles to fully understand the true identity of Jesus. But this sign at Cana was the first of seven signs that all point to Jesus as Messiah, which again is our central idea. It's interesting to see how the writer John puts less emphasis on the public aspects of Jesus' ministry in his first two miracles, but instead emphasizes the more private ministry of Jesus to individuals. And that should encourage all of us as we better understand the loving nature of Jesus. Roman numeral two, the temple cleansing. Now, the temple cleansing occurred during the last week of Jesus' life in the other three Gospels, but John puts it in in chapter two. So what do we make of this? Well, let's remember, John is not interested in putting all the events in his gospel in sequential order. Well, how do we know this? Because John clearly states the purpose of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, when he writes, These miracles are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Therefore, It's not his purpose to put all of the events of Jesus in chronological orders, so some of the events in this gospel will not be in the same sequence as the other gospels. But no problem, John is making points. So we're in Roman numeral two, the temple cleansing. In Jerusalem, there was possibly as many as 400 synagogues in the city, but it's the temple, a 46-year government building project just completed 10 years earlier that's the focal point of all Judaism. It's only at the temple that the priest offered animal sacrifices for individual and national sins. Now, many Jews traveled great distances to make it to the temple, 
It was also a welcome convenience that the animals could be purchased once they got in Jerusalem. In fact, they were purchased on site. Now, the kind of animal one bought and sacrificed depended on one's budget. If one could afford it, then an oxen or sheep were available to buy. However, the purchase of two pigeons or two doves was allowed for the poor, according to Leviticus 5, verse 7. And this is one indication we have that Jesus came from a poor family, because when Jesus was a baby and presented for circumcision at the temple in Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph only had enough means to purchase two young pigeons or doves. You can check that out in Luke 2.24. And so it's kind of a natural thing that Jesus especially loved the poor. Now, regarding the annual Passover feast, only sacrifices to atone for the people's sin, and all Jews were required to purchase some kind of animal for sacrifice. Now, this became big business, and money changers were available everywhere to exchange foreign currency into the special temple currency before they could buy the animals. So what was the problem with this for Jesus? The problem was not only that this exchange of money had become lucrative cash cows for the priest, but the real problem was spiritual. The temples divided into two parts. The Jews entered the inner court to pray and directly offer sacrifices, and the outer court, called the Court of the Gentiles, was available to God-fearing Gentiles. And it was in this outer court that the Jews, according to the Abrahamic covenant, were to meet with Gentiles who were seeking truth and to tell the Gentiles about the one true God and to pray to that God. Hmm. So, I mean, come on, you Jews, help a brother out. Talk to the <laughs> Gentiles. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the first meeting that God had with Abram in, in Genesis 12, Abram is commissioned to be the first of a chosen people who will be blessed by Yahweh. And God tells Abram, through you and your people, all families of the earth will be blessed. But what happens? The Jews keep the blessing to themselves. Do not share it with Gentiles. By the way, are we guilty of not sharing the goodness with others? We are. So, so it's, instead of praying with the Gentiles in the outer court, the Gentile court, This outer court became a noisy marketplace for crass commercialization. Tragically, buying, selling, and money changing mixed with hundreds of birds and animals all over the place had become an accepted way of life that everyone had come to expect. Mm. But, But suddenly, in this noisy mess, Jesus appears in this outer court, quickly assesses what's going on, grabs a rope, turns it into a whip, and cleans house, driving out the people and the animals. He makes it clear that he is large and in charge, and he will not have his father's house of worship turned into a marketplace. Mm. Now, my thought when I read this in high school was, how could the temple police allow this? I mean, and why don't the money changers fight against this lone agitator who's running their business? Well, there are three groups who react to Jesus because of this incident. So we'll find that out after the break. I have a feeling, Dr. Greg... Headington is my guest after a short break. We'll be back on In the Study of John. All right, we are back studying Book of John. We're in Chapter 2 with Dr. Greg, Greg Headington. And interesting that he, his first miracle, he's kind of solving a, a catering problem. And now we're in the temple, and he's uh, cleansing the temple, and we're going to have three different 
kinds of groups react to this incident, Greg, and let's move on with that. Well, here we go. Group number one is the traditional Jewish leaders, and they're thinking, this is a rabbi who's very sure of himself, but where did he come from? (laughs) What's his pedigree? Where did he go to yeshiva? How dare he come in and challenge how things are going in this outer temple? Group number two, there are a number of sincere and worshipful Jews who are thinking, well, it's about time that someone stands up against this blasphemous commerce going on in our sacred temple. I mean, could it be? Possibly. Maybe. This is the fulfillment of the prophets that this man, this man could be Messiah. Now, apart from these more sincere Jews who truly want to worship God, there was group number three, a large group of zealots who were militant, violent Jews ready to take over the oppressive Roman government if they had a chance. They're more commonly known as dagger men because each carried knives in their tunics waiting for the word that the revolution was on so they could slit the throat of the nearest Roman soldier. Today we'd call them terrorists, and when they saw Jesus was cleansing out the temple, they must have thought, this is a man of authority. If he's not already a zealot, let's see if we can win him over to our side for the great cause of overthrowing the Roman Empire and ushering the kingdom of God. And by the way, let's remember that Jesus does have a zealot as one of his apostles, eventually. Mm -hmm. The spiritually corrupt condition of the temple is, for John the writer, another metaphor for the corrupt condition of the entire nation of Israel. Their religion had become dull, mechanical, or just a routine of following laws defined as legalism, which is not love for the Lord. It's just checking off good deeds. Just like the wine that had run out at the wedding, God's glory had left the building, literally left the temple. And we can see why John brilliantly put these two events next to each other in this gospel. Now, the disciples had later remembered Psalm 69.9, which says, Zeal for your house will consume me. We do need zeal. We need enthusiasm. But this was not zeal for worship. The Jews, and some of us, have more zeal for whatever, making money, for doing things we like, but not always sharing our faith. It's easy to point fingers at them, but what about us? Do we stand for the truth of Christ when we have an opportunity, or do we just let it slide? Are we faithful to the Lord, even if it might make someone uncomfortable? And we know that some people think intolerance is the greatest of sins, even though they themselves may be intolerant of other opinions. Isn't it just easier to not make waves and just fitting with the status quo? Sure, but what are we compromising? What are we called to do? How are we called to live? The bottom line is, do we compromise the truth of Jesus? Furthermore, how do we view worship of the Lord, which is certainly not what's going on in the outer court? What is worship? Roman numeral three. Is worship A, gathering information, or is it B, a transformation of our hearts so we'll live for the Lord? Well, I vote for B. I do too. So what is yeah, what is worship? Do we, we do we go to worship service as an individual consumer to fill ourselves up with good thoughts for the day as if we were doing a spiritual duty, only have those thoughts dissipate by Monday? Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish theologian, philosopher, author, social critic, and founder of existentialism, concluded that a person can study and examine all they find out about Jesus for years, but in the end they must eventually, and here's the term he coined, make a leap of faith and believe. He says it's not like blindly, irrationally jumping off a cliff into the unknown darkness, but rather it's a decision made after rational examination of the facts. So what is worship? I'm sure this is not the way that worship is at your place, in your church, but sometimes, um, as Kierkegaard would say, worship's like a spectator sport, and therefore the amount of offering we give depends on how we are satisfied we are with the performers up front. Because sometimes we think of the people up front, the musicians, the preachers, performers, we as the congregation are the passive audience. So 
when we leave the service, we're entitled to evaluate how the performers did. Kierkegaard said this, that is not true worship. He says scriptural worship is when we understand that the people up front are prompters, we are the performers. So who's the audience? Well, none other than God himself. So when we leave worship, the question we ask ourselves is not how did they do, but rather how did I do? Did I bring myself, my gratitude, my joy, my praise to God? So what is worship? Well, one of today's leading Christian contemporary songwriters, Matt Redmond, said this, Worship can never be a performance, something you're pretending or putting on. It's got to be an overflow of your heart. Worship is about getting personal with God, drawing close to God. End of quote. Well, worship is not about the format of the science, it's not, uh, of the service. It's not about the beauty, the building, the style of people's clothes. It's about drawing close to the Lord. Well, here's the last point. Roman numeral four, worship is about trusting God whom we worship. To worship is to trust the inexhaustible resources of God. It's not in our own ability to trust that makes the difference in our life. Rather, it's the ability of the God whom we trust that makes the difference. The more we step out and depend on God to be there for us, the more dependable we find that God is. And that's what the writer says in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So we discover when we look back in our lives that God was with us every step of the way, even when sometimes it was painful. But sometimes it was that very pain which the Lord used to grab our attention so we might be on the right path. I believe no pain is wasted in God's economy. We can't change the past, but we can only choose now how we're going to move forward. Life is short, so we want to learn from that pain. All I've seen about God's faithfulness in my life teaches me to trust him for what I've not seen. And so we trust God for the unexpected things in our lives, and we look to him to surprise us when he does the unexplainable, as we've seen in this gospel, and all the signs point to Jesus as Messiah and our Lord. Bill? That's the word for the day. That's fantastic. You know, you made some points that are already screaming in my head, which I'm going to have to think about for a long time. But there has been a consumer mentality for people who go into worship. And it's yeah. like, okay, what do you got for me? Yeah. And I, I like or don't like the worship. I don't. I like or don't like the preaching. Um, and then we evaluate and then we leave. And I think, boy, you've just, you've turned it, uh, turned it around and pointed it right at where it should be. Which is, which is us uh, focusing on what are we doing to go and serve and uh, worship the Lord. Yes, yes. We are the performers. We're not the audience. We don't judge them. We've got to talk about how are we doing. Are we really putting everything to our worship for ourselves and for the Lord's sake? Yeah, and there's a lot of people that do church shopping, and there's nothing wrong with finding the right church, but I think you're supposed to uh, roll up your sleeves and go in and go, how do I serve? Amen. Not oh, what man. am I what am I getting from this church and if I don't like what I'm getting here I'm moving on. That's it. That's it. It's not about the show, it's about where are we? And we have to prepare ourselves sometimes before worship. We just have to be ready. I think the way we start off the day before worship is very important. Mm-hmm. No, I couldn't agree more. And I, I'm always amazed at that Jesus always was meeting a need. I mean, you look at his uh, last two, his first and last miracle, the first one, he is basically solving a, a catering problem. And the last miracle, I'm thinking of him in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, when Malchus got his ear cut off, he bends down and picks up his ear and puts it back on his head. I mean, kind yes. of meeting a need as, yes. he's, as he's on his way for the worst 24 hours of his life. You know, that's so encouraging to us because that shows he cares about individuals. I mean, really loves individuals. Yeah, he really does. And he usually... Uh, always starts by meeting a need. And if you have a need that needs being met today, 
trust that Jesus will show up and meet your need in the Amen. way that in the way that He can and will. Amen. Yeah, I'm loving the study on John, Greg. Thank you so much for uh, uh, taking us on this path and and explaining Scripture so beautifully and uh, keeping us hooked. I love it. Well, I look forward to the next time I come back on. Cool. Let's do it then. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest, and he's been shepherding us through the book of John. It's been wonderful. We're going to continue that study. We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, uh, Hour 2 is going to be uh, kind of an encore presentation I have with Becky Pippert. She was uh, in our Salvation Series, which we did last fall. And it's going to be, again, Becky's an amazing, gifted speaker. That's all coming up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.